everybody. It's Tanya Adlita with Recovering Church Girls. Welcome back and welcome especially to our guest today, Leah Carver. So first of all, hi, Leah. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation today. Oh my goodness, you and me both. I've been looking forward to this. And so anyone who might not know you yet, Leah is the author of Undoing Hashimoto's and also the founder of Biohacking with the Agents. So we are certainly going to dive deeper into those things because I think they're so fascinating and so applicable to those of us who are really kind of coming back to ourselves and prioritizing our own self-care, our self-worth. But before I get ahead of myself and get into the idea of biohacking with the ancients, I definitely want to be able to hear more about your story and what you think of when you hear recovering church girls. What comes to mind? What resonated with you about this whole idea? Well... It's an interesting topic. It's a big topic. And really, it just spoke to my entire um, childhood in such a big way. I was raised with a Catholic mother who had a deep appreciation for the ritual of religion more than anything else. Um, And in middle school, I started to attend a very strict, small Baptist school. Interesting. And my father never went to church. So I had this wide array of religion um, really presented to me throughout my life. And I can remember having like existential crisis, you know, pouring over the Bible and, and really trying to figure it out. Mm. Like, I need to know the truth. I need to know the truth, you know? And, um, you know, my mother says a great quote from me at 10, which was, you know, the the wisdom of a 10 year old, the truth is what's in your heart. Mm. And yet here I was at 12, 13, 14, 15, kind of really feeling pressure Mm. to believe something um, that was being taught to me and not necessarily believing it Mm. in the way I was being told to believe it. And so there was this really strong sense of, well, how do I fit into this? Who am I? Do I give up my sense of self in um, exchange for this belief system? Or do I honor myself and kind of rebel against this belief system and of course, you know, as a, as a middle school or teenager, like you just kind of want to fit in. Right. So <laughs> these are difficult conversations to have and difficult questions to have. And so when I heard that you were doing this podcast, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, <laughs> that, that's such a good conversation. I am so excited to have you here because I feel like there's there's just so many nuanced pieces already just for what you've laid out for us about this idea of here you are age 10 with this connection to a truth that is so much bigger than you yourself and yet you find yourself in the middle of it and then the complexity that comes in with what we're told to believe or how we're told to act or even I think what we're told to perceive you know how how we find ourselves in these questions. And I can totally identify the idea of being in an existential crisis at, you know, middle school. (laughs) 
And I chose the same thing. I wanted to fit in. And I think there were there were questions that I still had. And I don't know that I had the the wherewithal to be able to say, I don't know. I don't know wasn't an acceptable answer for any question related to faith. It was, you know, kind of hold the party line. And if you have any doubts or questions, that's something that you keep amongst yourselves or, uh, you know, go to your, your pastor with, or, you know, something that's someone that's Mm -hmm. going to turn you right back to again, the party line and the doctrine that is, is to be perpetuated. So, uh, yeah, already there's a lot of layers here. <laughs> so what, sure. was, what was high school like for you? You know, were you involved with the church? What was your community like? Uh, you know, what was spirituality like for you at that point? So I think that's partly why there was such an existential crisis because I, because I had all these varying degrees. So I would go to um, church with my friends I would go to Sunday school with them. It was kind of like Sunday school on Wednesday night and church on Sunday. And they were, they were all, you know, really raised within this pretty strong Baptist faith. And so, and it was, you know, presented as fun. Um, And, and then there was like this other part of me, you know, so not only was my mother raised within the Catholic church, but she had, you know, Shirley MacLaine on the shelves and the Bhagavad Gita and, You know, there was all of this mysticism as well. And, um, you know, she spoke about reincarnation and all of these things. And so where I found myself really, really challenged within the high school, middle school experience was that it felt like in order to really be the good girl at school, everybody else like in my life kind of had to be wrong. And so I had a really hard time with it. I felt very um, scared, you know, Mm -hmm. like I had a lot of anxiety around it because I wanted to be seen. Mm -hmm. And of course I wanted to be, you know, special as all children do. Right. And, and yet I could see how my upbringing had already put me like out of the picture. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of over to the right. Right. Absolutely. And I didn't feel completely accepted or part of it because my parents weren't at church. So I wasn't having these conversations with pastors per se, but we would have spiritual emphasis week at school where they brought in people and, you know, you could raise your hand if you wanted to be saved and, you know, students would come up and witness to you or to, you know, like share their story with the auditorium and things like this. And these were, you know, the kids that were kind of like the leaders within, you know, the teachers Mm -hmm. and and all of those things. Like these were the good kids. These were the kids that got the accolades and things like that. Absolutely. So there became this part of me that was like, oh, well, I can't fit in. And Mm -hmm. so I actually, you know, felt very much that there was no room to be you could either agree you know and like get on board and play the part and there really wasn't room for questions like nobody really wanted to answer questions Mm -hmm. and nobody really wanted to hear that you weren't in agreement right absolutely and so yeah this is so interesting because I'm realizing as you're you're kind of taking us back to this moment of time 
where I look at my childhood, I'm thinking of the places where I felt like I didn't belong or I didn't fit in was as the good Christian girl in the secular environment. So I went to public school up through eighth grade, Mm -hmm. and I always felt that kind of tension of like, but these people don't believe or they're not acting like I was told to. But then in, you know, kind of the opposite scenario, you're in a more religious environment and having this moment of, I don't fit in because I didn't have this background. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. And, and it, and what's interesting and so much of what I teach now is, is that the pain point is actually when the inner knowing and the outer experience aren't in alignment. Mm. Right. And so here I was at this. Let's talk about that because that's, (laughs) that is such a huge piece. And I feel like every single one of us uh, that's tied to recovering church girls, we've all had that moment. And sometimes we have it over and over and over again until we make a conscious decision that creates the reality in which our out, you know, our external uh, situation basically then now lines up with our internal. But man, is that a bigger that's not something that you can necessarily do just in a split decision type of, of choice. So what did that look like for you? How did you, how did you then come to reconcile the inner knowing and the outer example and, and kind of external showing of that? So I think what, um, you know, there's so many layers to this as well, but, (laughs) but at the time, you know, in high school, I, I did, I spent hours kind of pouring over, um, the Bible and crying and feeling um, a deep sense of like, you know, I want to do what's right. I'm a good Mm. person. Um, And also, you know, it's like that spiritual human, like we're spiritual and we're human. And so for me, I felt like there wasn't a lot of room for the humanity piece. Mm. And, and it was, you know, it was like you in being saved it meant that you um, just weren't allowed to be wrong, Mm. right? Like you weren't allowed to, in my school, you know, there was like no listening to rock and roll music. You know, you had to sign a pledge at the beginning of the year. Now, I I mean, the pledges. Yeah. Like, (laughs) you know, as a 16 year old kid, you're signing a pledge that says, I won't listen to rock and roll music. I won't watch R rated movies. I won't, Mm have any alcohol. I won't, you know, there's a six inch rule between the boys. Right. And the thing is, is that it, um, it just meant that your friends were like really, really close to you Mm. because, because you all lied together. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay. You know, like, like there's this unspoken sense of like, you know, we're, we're like, we're signing the pledge because we all want to go to school together and be Uh here and, and all of these things. But, but like, this just isn't realistic. Like this isn't real. Like we want to dance. I don't think there's, you know, we didn't have prom at school. It was like a banquet, you know, Same here. (laughs) Um, you know, so there's like all these things, all these things about humanity that are beautiful, like Mm. dancing and being playful and just being able to make mistakes that, that were taken off the table and it was Mm. like, you will be judged. Mm. Right. And so you learn to have this layer of like inauthentic behavior in a way. Right. Right. And so, you know, me, I just became like the, the master rebel, you know, like, um, 
I was the strong one. I was the one that got kicked out of the classroom when, you know, anybody got called out on anything because I had a voice. Um, And so I I just kind of created this, you know, this space because I already felt like the outcast. So I would be the, I would take that on for everybody else. Um, That's so interesting. That's so interesting. So I love that idea though, because, you know, whether whether there was a space for the questions to be asked or your voice to be heard or not, you made the space and you, you took up the space that you deserved in that environment. And I feel like what so many of us did was we didn't necessarily, you know, find our voice until much later. And I think I probably went back and forth. You know, there were some situations that was the upside about moving so often. Mm. I moved like 16 times before I graduated high school. So in some cases, I was the cool new kid. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, I was the very not cool new kid. So, you know, depending on what the environment was like, sometimes I was outspoken and I was the rebel and I would be willing to shake things up. And then other times, not so much. So it really you know, kind of fluctuated throughout my middle school and high school. Uh, so it's so interesting how all these pieces fit together to really become part of our identity and more often than not in a way that we're not even cognizant when it's happening. And it's not until much later in life that we can then be far enough removed that we can start to disassemble all of the pieces that we thought made us us. And lo and behold, it was actually someone else's perspective or guidelines or you know whatever it was that we were trying to ascribe to totally and and that's the thing is that it felt like a it felt like we were role playing to some degree like there was a lack of realness to any of the relationships with teachers or you know going for guidance and things like that like you would never actually seek guidance That's interesting. <laughs> because it felt like you would really just get judgment. And of course, that was my experience, you know, and, and let me tell you, it's not like I was um, the best at asking questions or stirring the pot. It was pretty much like chaos, you know, like I wasn't using my voice in a great way. It was more just like a like a full on rebellion. Like, no. You know. I, I can identify with that. I kind of sort of let a sit-in rebellion in my um, senior year in high school. <laughs> and, you know, it's so funny because there's pieces of this where I feel like sometimes my parents might get a bad rap um, by way of these conversations. And I want to be really, really clear that they had my back 100%. And my mom gave me the most beautiful gift not too long ago when I started talking about this idea of recovering church girls. And she said, you know, I've been meaning to tell you for a while, uh, I want to apologize for the way in which you were raised. And mm-hmm. it just, it came out of nowhere to me and, and you could have knocked me over with a feather. So I start crying and she's crying and, you know, it's like this whole moment. And she's like, I just want you to know that we did the best we could with what we had available at the time. And that for me was such a huge piece, I think in some ways of me feeling comfortable pursuing this this conversation and pursuing this idea but back to this idea of the uh, this whole sit-in rebellion thing my parents got the phone call from the principal and here's an example of where I can say they absolutely had my back because I forget what the guy's name was it'll come back to me at some inopportune moment and uh, he's calling my parents saying you know your daughter is a troublemaker and you need to come and collect her and my dad pretty much ripped him up one side and down the next in a very polite way, but basically Mm -hmm. saying, no, we raised her to be an independent thinker. And if this is what she feels she needed to do to get the attention of the administration, then we back her a hundred percent. 
And I think that that's something that I tend to forget. You mm-hmm. know, when I lump my whole childhood into this experience, I don't always remember those moments where I did find my voice and I used it and I was supported. It's so easy to fall into the the habit of thinking back about these things and just feel like a victim when in reality that is not entirely mm-hmm. accurate. You know, there's different pieces I think that kind of fit in. And I, I love what you said earlier about the idea of the human and the spirit and the interaction between the two and how rare it was in these kinds of environments for the humanity to actually be recognized as valid because everything was so focused on the spiritual. I remember the kind of running commentary was that people were so heavenly minded, they were no earthly good. You know, like mm-hmm. there was just this total disconnect to who we were and who we needed to be to do anything in the world other than let's go out and go save the world by the weekend. Right. And I think that's the whole, you know, the, the whole perfectionism thing mm. can come so easily from, from that space of, well, let me, you know, let me be perfect. Like, how do I show up so that there is no judgment, right? Mm. Cause we're so scared yeah. of judgment. And so the inner conversations became, become deeper and more inward and, and more um, separate from, from the actual way that we're living. And, and I do think that it, you know, it does create pain, right? It's like this pain point. And, um, you know, for me, I, I actually got asked to leave or expelled in the middle of my, uh, my junior year. And, you know, not to go into the exact situation that occurred at that time, but I, um, it actually wasn't true like the whole story of the interaction that the teacher told to the, to the principal and the dean and all of these things was completely false. Mm. But because of the um, representation of myself, right? Like I was the rebel. Of course right. it was true, right? Of course. And so it was kind of like, um, you know, one of those things that I'd been called into the office over the summer with my parents and told that I was like, you know, questioned about who I was and if I'd gone to this graduation party and, you know, if I'd done this or I'd done that. And basically, because they couldn't, you know, prove that I'd done something wrong, they were like, okay, well, you can come back, but, you know, the next time there's any kind of situation it's over. Wow. So they were just waiting for you to misstep in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And there was no like, can we help you? Can Mm. we support you? And, and that's the real thing for me is that in reflection, I was actually this child who was going through a lot of trauma at home. Mm. My parents got divorced at you know, I say they got divorced between the ages of 13 and 15, because it was kind of like this ongoing situation for years. And that's when like, a strong, religious, like guiding, loving, nurturing hand would have Mm. actually been like the most influential thing in my life. Mm. And I didn't feel like I had anything that I could actually lean into. It was much more about just you know, that was one more reason why I was a bad kid because my parents were getting divorced. Ah, so you have the judgment for their experience tagged to you. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because it, it's not right, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, because you no longer fit the mold, you know, even further now at this point. 
Exactly. Yeah. And so it, it really was this very interesting place to grow up, like this, this pain of, you know, wanting, wanting to be seen, wanting to be powerful, wanting to be special, wanting to be, you know, um, loved, most importantly, and not fitting in at all to that. Until I basically had to <laughs> kind of sabotage it and get myself out, you know? <laughs> so what, what happened then? I mean, you're in your junior year. What, what did you do for schooling at that point? And from a community aspect, you know, because you were in tight relationship with these friends that you yeah. really created your entire world around. And I would imagine with your parents divorcing at that time, that only tightened those friendships in that same scenario. So what happened for you, you know, in that last half of your high school experience? So I have to tell you that it was probably one of the, you know, most um, traumatic in a way experiences of my life because Mm -hmm. I was basically thrown out of my community, my friends. I kind of, my family was, I was the youngest. So my brother and sister were kind of gone. So it was me and, you know, my parents. And and so my community was kind of gone. And I felt definitely um, like my friends failed me, you know, because I was also, and this is not healthy, but I was that kid that had my friend been expelled. I would have been like, I'm not going back there. Like, (laughs) like we need to stage a walkout kind of thing because that was wrong. You know, like Mm -hmm. that was me. Is that a good thing? Probably not. Like it sounds a little codependent, but, but it's just who I, who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I felt I felt very um, unearthed and Mm. most of my friends, I actually kind of lost connection with them Mm. in the sense that I I think their parents were kind of like, well, she got expelled. Like you kind of need some separation from her as well. She's a bad influence. She's a bad influence. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and they just got on with their lives. Like they just Mm. carried on. And so I was in this new school and, you know, I did fine, but I kind of put my head down and my grades got exponentially better. Mm. <laughs> there was a silver lining to be found, right? <laughs> for sure, for sure. You know, and what's really interesting is my husband was actually at school with me. So he was two years older than me at that school. Um, so he was graduated already when I had um, got expelled. But but I started dating him my senior year of high school when he was in college. And um you know, we got married. So in some ways, um, it's like th- that church aspect never left my life because he was, he was brought up within, within those mm. strong religious guidelines. And so we still had to have the conversation of how do I fit, you know, within this, right. within this world. Oh, that's um, so interesting. So it's something that is still very much a, a piece of the everyday family life, I would imagine, because not only between you and your your family as far as your husband and your children, but then also the extended family when you get into yes. the in-law situation and, and all of that. So exactly. I definitely want to talk about that further, but I also, I love that you mentioned codependency because <laughs> I am pretty close to saying with 100% certainty, still working on those numbers, but the idea being there's something in this recovering church girls piece that leads us to codependency. Hmm. I have seen over and over again, not only in all of the conversations, but in so much of the research in, again, who we see ourselves to be, our own identity, 
the self-worth or lack thereof, you know, in the idea of our value is as we relate to someone else and what we can do for them, and the idea of servitude and how that all comes together, again, through the lens of growing up in the church and having women often in the roles of doing all the things to help all the people, but never, ever helping ourselves and never prioritizing our own self-care. And self-care is actually the way that you and I connected because I was in dire need of one of the the tools that you have and that you've created. And I'm so grateful. And I'm sure we'll get to that in a second as well. But the idea of codependency, I think, is something that is incredibly subtle and Mm -hmm. so pervasive. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that isn't talked about often enough, I feel, in these kinds of conversations. Yeah. And I think for women more than men, right? So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but being a woman within the church world, you were in some degrees taught that A, the man was the important, you know, like to to honor him and to help him and to, you know, and my husband have had, you know, we love to have these conversations as well because he sees it a little bit differently. Mm. But um, this was the way that I this is the way that I heard it, right? Mm-hmm. Was that what I, my needs were really not important. It was mm-hmm. about taking care of, of other people's needs. And I right. think that when we value ourselves based on, on that versus recognizing our own potential and like our own purpose and recognizing that when we show up in our purpose, we are actually showing up in a much more powerful way to support other people as well. Mm, So true. So true. And again, that idea of, you know, legacy was something that was always incredibly important to me and the idea of making a difference with whatever it was I was doing. So whether that is, you know, just me and who I am or was also a byproduct from this kind of environment, I'm still grateful for that. And yet I've also found there is a tension that was never really discussed in any way, shape, or form, but that balancing act of, you know, how incredibly important it is to prioritize our self-care and self-love and self-compassion, especially when you have this big vision or a mission or some way that you want to make a difference in the world. They are so incredibly interconnected, and yet I feel like one of the byproducts is this separation that is almost systemic that came from a lot of this culture and a lot of the the teachings. Again, the idea that as women, you know, our needs just weren't that important. Um, you know, our feelings don't matter. Uh, our thoughts really need to be subjugated to whatever the scripture says. And heaven forbid that we would ever listen to our bodies as an indicator of what was going on with us mentally or emotionally, or even spiritually for that matter. Even though mm-hmm. you can go back and find scriptures that will actually back up that philosophy, But somehow from the pulpit and in the classroom, it was very much the idea of, well, you in and of yourself don't have any value. Your only value is what you do for other people. And to accomplish that, you need to work yourself into, you know, down to the bone, into the grave. You need to overextend yourself. You need to get those gold stars. You know, it's all about the external uh, experience of that as mm-hmm. opposed to the internal and really bringing together all the pieces that we really are. Yeah. And I, I think that's for me, exactly. It speaks exactly to that. We think that, you know, it becomes this external thing versus like looking at the internal, 
um, struggles and, and recognizing that we all have our struggles, right? But, but instead, we're kind of taught to put the mask on and, and you know, um, smile mm-hmm. and, and be pleasant and, um, you know, pretend. And, and for me, there just is a lack of like connection and juiciness in that, right? Because I like messy, right? Like I like when things are a little crazy and I like that um, I can speak that and say, you know, today is not that great of a day, but right. you know, that doesn't mean tomorrow's not going to be that great, but, but just being allowed to just really feel you know, who you are and, and what's going on for you um, in, a, in a very physical way, as well as the other layers. I love that. I so appreciate the idea of what I'm hearing in you saying that is this idea of honoring really mm-hmm. where we are right now and who we are just as much as any part of the experience. Yeah. And that to me is like the ultimate self-care. Right. So there's things we can do to take actions that support us as far as self-care. But ultimately, it's like, can we just honor what's available right now? What like what's happening inside? What's the conversation? Mm. Um, And if we can be in that conversation with ourselves instead of pushing it away or, you know, saying it's bad, then we allow it to evolve. Like it's literally like that's evolution. Like that's Mm. moving forward. That's using this this stuff to, you know, bring us closer to God, actually, mm-hmm. right. right? And um, whereas I just became very angry at God because there was so much pain, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, there's this anger because, because I'm praying and I'm praying and he's not hearing me, mm-hmm. right? And it's kind of like Cinderella, like looking for a savior and you think that God, you know, because mm-hmm. he is the, the savior, you think that he's going to, you know, create this fairy tale life for you and that's not it right right Right? like it's it's really more about discovering yourself Mm. um, and using pain I mean pain is an amazing catalyst to um you know create what it is that we want to create it will it will get us up faster out of um a space in our life than anything else Mm -hmm. and that's that's the humanity of us um, you know, and where this, when I was 17, so I was a senior, I'd left the school, but I was talking to a friend of mine that had gone to the school. We worked together. We had an after-school job together. And there was another girl that worked with us and she was a waitress at the cafe that we worked at. And, and this girl that worked with us was, she was a little bit older than us. She was 22 and she'd grown up and she'd gone through drug addiction and she'd gone through all of this pain in her life. She had a hard life. And she was at a place where she'd gone through rehab, where she'd like turned it around. She married her husband. She was so happy. And two weeks later, I went to her funeral. Two weeks after her wedding, I went to her funeral. Oh my goodness. She was in a car accident. Mm. And my friend and I went to get a coffee after the funeral and we sat there and we were talking and I said, so, you know, she'd really grown up within the church. And I said, so based on your religion, where, where is she right now? And she said, she's, she's in hell. 
she wasn't, you know, she didn't believe in God. Hmm. And I just, I couldn't swallow that. And that for me was the moment where I was just like, no, Hmm. no. Like here is somebody that overcame Hmm. so much in a short amount of time. She went through so much pain. She, you know, she fought it back and she, she grew into this amazing woman. And I just couldn't, I was just like, no, like that is not the God I believe in. That is not the God I want to believe in. And, and that for me, really, it allowed me to choose my truth. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I can't imagine what that must have been like to, to be so close to the situation and yet, you know, kind of still needing to find your own footing underneath you. I would imagine, in essence, feeling rather betrayed from the church or the church circle, the school circle, you know, your friends and having all of this transition going on with your parents divorcing. I mean, all of this happened within a two, three year time span. That's a lot to handle for anyone, much less for a teenage girl to be able to really, you know, kind of experience all those things and sort them all out as they're happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot, you know, Um, but you know, it's my life path. You know, so it was like at 21, I was the kid that was in yoga teacher training while my friends were, you know, at the street party, you know what I mean? Like, like kind of wondering what the heck I was doing, but, but I've always been kind of on this, this mission. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And you mentioned earlier the idea that your mom had kind of this interesting uh, juxtaposition between the ritual of the Catholic uh, environment, whether that was just the religion itself or, or the rituals that were involved in that, but then also this mysticism piece yeah. and in the work that you're doing now, not only from having been a yogi, but the idea going back to biohacking with the ancients, there's so much that I see in this that really blends the humanity and the spirituality with a touch of mysticism as well. And I would say that probably because that's more I think if I had to label myself, that's probably where I would end up. I decided earlier today that I'm like a woo and a half. I'm not quite fully woo woo with both yeah. of them, but I think I'm like a woo and a half. Mm-hmm. So what does that look like for you now? What what has your spiritual journey been like up to this point? And then how are you using that to then turn around and help others? Yeah, so it's interesting. Again, you know, the the yoga world, what I, what I love about yoga is yoga means union, you know, and of course, just like any other spiritual discipline, there are different schools. And so what I've learned mostly is you have to find what works for you, right? Like you have to find something that mirrors your truth and allows you to be you in not only allows you to be you, but it it elevates you, right? It brings you up. It doesn't feel, um, like you're trying to fit into something. It doesn't feel like you have to be different than who you are. Of course, we're trying to get better. Of course, we're trying to get more powerful. Of course, we're trying to, you know, be able to love more and and change the world, right? But we don't have to be anything other than us. Mm. And so within the yoga community, um, you know, I was 21, I'm 41 now. So it's been 20 years of practicing yoga. I've been through different, different schools of yoga. Um, 
And now I study with Rod Stryker, who's a para yoga. He's just incredible. And, and really what he has taught me is that, you know, there's a, there's a certain sense of being able to create inner peace when everything around you is perfect, right? You could go be in a quiet space and everything, everything seems easy, right? And you can kind of connect a little bit. You know, it's not easy, but it's easier. Sure. And then you throw yourself into this world where, you know, if you have kids or you're, you know, you're busy and you're working and you've got a husband and you're, you know, you're doing all these things, like it's, it's even harder, right? Because it's so easy to, to get pulled out. Um, and so it's, it's the work of just honoring who you are and where you are in your life. But at the same time, letting these ancient traditions that have so much weightiness and like power in a way behind them, right? Like, because they've been practiced because they've been taught and having a teacher, um, and you know, my teacher has a teacher and, you know, it's like, it's like the lineage that his teacher came from and his teacher. And so how do you use the support of these ancients mm. in this modern world? How do you make it work for you? And so that to me is, is really the most beautiful thing is like, how do I show up um, as the best version of me? Because I've learned that I can't be anybody else. Mm. That didn't work for me. I tried that. Right. I was just going to say, know? I tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Like, it just didn't work. You know, I, I would love, sometimes I'm like, oh, why couldn't I, have, why wouldn't, why couldn't I have been happy doing that? Mm. You know, why couldn't I be the stay-at-home mom? Like, no judgment on stay-at-home moms. I think they're freaking amazing. I just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Like, it just, it just was too much for me. I needed to, you know, have work. Um, and so it's, it's honoring who you are, mm -hmm. I think in, in the greatest sense of the world, in the world and in, you know, within our internal environment and our external environment and learning how to support that mm -hmm. in the best way. Right. So right. this is who I am. What practices serve me? Mm -hmm. Because what serves me doesn't necessarily serve you. Right. Absolutely. And that's where the play becomes, right? Like, so it's all about self-knowledge. The more we know ourselves, mm -hmm. the more we start to understand what suits us mm -hmm. and, and how to make the most, like how to, you know, and I call it hacking because it's like, how do we get there faster, mm -hmm. right? And resistance, like trying to be something you're not, doesn't get you there. So true. Like discipline can only take you so far. Right. And then you feel like a failure. And I, you know, when I got sick with Hashi's three years ago, that was like the ultimate um, lesson mm. was I was like, oh, I need to eat perfectly and I need to do this. and I need to do this. And I tried this diet and I failed. Mm. And then I was like, oh, I suck. I'm not mm. good enough. I don't have any discipline. What's wrong with me? And then I tried again and I maybe went like a little bit further and then I, failed again. And so, you know, there's like this idea that can come from that, like, am I a failure? Or is this just not right for me? Right? Like, mm -hmm. how do I start to make this diet work? And what, 
what really to me like started to happen is it's like, what can I do easily? Like what feels easy right now? And the only way I know that is by paying attention to what's happening right now, being in the conversation with right now, so that I can take action that feels quite easy, um, so that I can then create more capacity and more resilience, so I can then create more change. So then my diet can change without it feeling hard. It just changes because it's easier for me to change my diet all of a sudden. I'm not so attached to it. Mm-hmm. And I would right. imagine there's a certain amount of momentum that you're being, that you're developing really exactly. in that process. And I, I love that idea as it relates to practices and belief systems. So the idea of, you know, we're both saying, I tried, <laughs> I tried to be that person and to check all the boxes and to follow all the rules and it didn't work. So maybe there is a deeper question here. And that's definitely, I think, you know, kind of an idea that the journey that you and I both went on to say, if this doesn't work, then what does and what is that deeper learning and what's the deeper purpose in this? And I think sometimes that a lot of people get stuck in that pain point. You mentioned something earlier about pain being this, you know, beautiful catalyst. And I love that perspective because I think that so often in the day-to-day society and the, the social media influence and kind of the idea that life should be easy or life should be good and we're always looking for the high notes, it's very easy to assume that pain is bad and that yeah. if something is is painful that your only choice is just to suck it up and stay in that pain. So can you talk to that piece a little bit more about seeing pain as a catalyst, and especially in thinking of those who are listening who experience trauma in some Mm -hmm. way, shape, or form by the church, and they're holding it as opposed to allowing themselves to, to feel and to learn through it. Because I think sometimes when the trauma happens... Or even when you're trying to distance yourself from that kind of community or that kind of culture, we hold on to the trauma and we don't even realize we're doing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a saying that we hear in yoga and it's, it's pain is guaranteed. Suffering is optional. Mm. <laughs> and I think that speaks to it, right? It's like life is hard at times at times it's beautiful and joyful and we see the magic all around us. And, you know, it just takes a sneeze for all of that to shift. Mm. Um, But I think, you know, we want to, like, we don't, I want to think that these things have reasons, right? It's not to hurt us. And so it's really, this is the belief system that you have to kind of, you know, choose whether it works for you or not. But it's like, do I want this to be just to to destroy me? Mm. Or can I learn something from it? Can I gain something from it? Can I, can I start to look at it and, and kind of move through it? Um, Because I think with any trauma, you know, um, we keep it within us, right? And it shows up, it manifests in different ways. And for me, it manifested, I think, as, as chronic illness, you know? Ultimately, yes, I can change my diet. Yes, I can, um, 
do these practices. Um, but I still have to allow some of the layers of stuff that I've collected over the years to, to go, to go. And, and that becomes, you know, such a beautiful thing because it no longer serves, right? Like, like at some point, maybe it was protecting me, right? The anger, maybe it was protecting me. Um, but, but I don't need that protection anymore. So I can let that go or whatever it is, you know, because we, we create these grooves in our lives, right? Like we call them samskaras in yoga. We create these grooves and these become our tendencies. And so they become our actions. And so if we're walking around angry um, about a trauma or, you know, something like that, it's going to show up in all areas of our life. It just is. We're going to be more protected. We're going to be more shut down. We're maybe going to be um, more judgmental than we'd like, right? Like however it manifests. Mm-hmm. And, and so the real opportunity is to, to say, okay, look, I've suffered around this long enough. Mm. And yeah, it's not going to be easy but I'm ready to, I'm ready to do the work. And for me, doing the work means like physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Mm-hmm. Like that's the work because you can create a perfect life that looks perfect from the outside, right? There's plenty of millionaires and billionaires that are not happy. Mm-hmm. And externally, you might like look at their life and go, oh, look, they have it all but they're not happy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the layer of spirituality, I believe. You know, that's where God really comes in and, and whatever your relationship to God is. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's recognizing like, oh, that anger at God, like mm-hmm. that, doesn't, that doesn't work for me. Right. Right? That, so put it down. Yeah, I love that. And I think they sometimes just to hear someone say, just release it if it doesn't serve you, mm-hmm. sometimes it can seem like a platitude and it can seem, you know, like, oh, well, it must be nice for you to say you've been practicing mm-hmm. yoga for 20 years. You know, like people can get very snarky and very opinionated about the things that we can say to be a tool. But until you're at the point that you can not only understand, but more importantly, I think, accept what it is that's being said as these are very practical actionable tools that are given and if you haven't done the work you might consider it just to all be the woo-woo stuff Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know for for us to be able to say to you know release something to choose to let it go these are words that we're choosing very intentionally because we know what they mean because of the work that we've done and it just so happens that at the time of our recording we just had a beautiful full moon Uh, just yesterday. And that is historically the time to release the things that no longer serve us. The new moon is the time to be creating your new visions and and your intentions about what it is that you want to create and experience in the world. And your full moon is the time to release. So I love, 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 love that that's exactly what came up in conversation, because I think that there's something there's something very special that happens when you put yourself in a place of 
willingness to change and to grow and to release the things that don't serve you and become the best version of yourself. There's an underbelly to that for those of us that have that tendency to be perfectionist and to get caught up in, you know, being the best version as opposed to just being who we are right now and honoring who we are right here, right now. So there's, you know, definitely some some tension there sometimes. But I think too, to be able to see when we are wildly supported by the universe and by people and by these, you know, things that happen that are coincidences, and I'm using my little air quotes, but they're really not. It's all mm-hmm. it's all conspiring for our good, and yet it requires us to do the work to see it that way as opposed to just assume that everything is bad and to have this negative, you know, kind of outlook on life. It's very easy to develop that and to stay in that space. So it does take some work to get out of that and to shift our perspective. Yeah, totally. I mean, for me, you know, I use nature as a huge source of inspiration. So there's seasons, right? Mm -hmm. And just like you're saying with the moons, it's like everything is cyclical, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, fall, for example, like I'm I'm teaching this retreat in the fall. And why we go on retreat in the fall is because it's the perfect time for things to fall away, Mm. right? If you think about a tree that is letting go of its leaves, now, you know, three or four months before that, that tree would have been in its perfect prime beauty, perfect, right? Like it's got all its green leaves, it's got flowers everywhere or whatever, And then it comes to fall and it has to let all of that go. Mm. And so perfection is fleeting as well, right? Like, like we think we get there and then we, you know, we recognize that perfection is just an opinion, first of Mm. all, like it's it's like, you know, (laughs) we all have different opinions of what perfect is. And so there is not a real place, but you know, when we get to this place where we feel like we're doing it really well, everything's lined up, you know, the next moment it's changing. And so the opportunity is to resist that and pretend that that's not real, (laughs) which creates more suffering, Right. right? Or to like hack into that power and say, now, wait a second, if it's fall, if I have to like, if I'm going to like naturally go through this cycle of letting things go, like, what do I actually want to let go of? What is holding me back? How can I, you know, kind of let that go? How do I then move into winter, which is more of like an internal season where we can start to, you know, conspire in the darkness of what it is that we want to create? Like, what are we bringing forth in the spring? What's Mm. popping up? Right. And so the really cool thing is that we, it's not just about what we believe. It's like in evidence all around us. Mm. Right. So, so nature is perfect in that it's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it just happens. And we see fires and we see storms and we see changes in weather. Right. And so it's, it's not that it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do all the time, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, But there's no emotional attachment to it. (laughs) Right. And I think even there, though, there's, there's a a bit of grace that's given in the sense of, you know, the storms and the fires and the earthquakes and the things that are not the way that nature would want to exist. We can assume Mm -hmm. 
And I think also for the humans that are living in the nature, it's not what we want either. But at the same time, the nature still exists and it still continues its cycles and it still continues its seasons and nothing sways nature from continuing its seasons. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just like the body when it's speaking to us, you know, um, you know, again, just to give myself as an example, because that's the easiest one, getting chronic illness, you know, what my body is telling me is there's something wrong, right? Like there's something that needs to be, to be worked through or to be, it needs your attention. And so the more, um, the more, you know, and again, no judgment here, but the more painkillers I take to pretend that there's no pain, Mm. the less able I am to really engage with it. Mm. Right. So it's like, so, so can we feel, I think the invitation is, can we feel the pain a little bit just enough to help us move through? Right. Mm. Um, And, and find the people that support us in, in creating that better life because life it really can be very magical Mm. even in the pain but that's practice like Mm. that takes so much practice and it's again it's like choosing it over and over and over and over again it's not like I wake up like you know like every day (laughs) you know it's like I'm choosing the practice Mm -hmm. of like how do I show up as my best me? Yeah. You know, so even if I'm, you know, I always say, even if I'm acting unconsciously, I'm consciously choosing to be unconscious, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> if I want that chocolate bar and Netflix, it's like, well, you have to choose that, you know, like you have to make that choice mm-hmm. instead of just doing it, you know? Right, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Leah, this has been a fascinating conversation. I knew it would be. Thank you yeah, so much so for much. your time and just really your your presence, you know, being fully present with us and, and going to these various places in your past and, and your present now and being able to share that with us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really love that you're bringing this conversation to the uh, forefront of people. Yeah, I think it's important work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for those of you who are listening, continue the conversation. You know, it's really, I love what you said, Leah, and thank you so much for that, because this that's really what this is all about, is having a safe place to have the conversation, to find community again, and to find a way back to ourselves, all of the parts of ourselves, which include our spirituality. We don't have to just shut it off because we're mad at God, although I think a lot of us have gone through that (laughs) or maybe are still in that space. And and that's okay. That's part of the process. Uh, So if this resonates with you, you know what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm simply going to ask you to share it with someone else that you think might really be able to benefit from it and start a conversation, continue the conversation. That's always my thing. So Leah, thank you again so much. I appreciate it. And we will see you guys again here soon, very soon. Thanks. Bye.